And until you have the process of free trade, you don't actually know which industries are going to be the industries where you are relatively most productive. You need the process of trade to discover that. You can't identify the industries in advance, then protect them and then hope that they will flourish. Welcome to Act in Line, a podcast from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. A major driver for the increase in wealth and material well-being across the globe since the 19th century has been increasing globalization. But globalization has also created a number of challenges. It has provoked political movements on both the right and the left that are hostile to it and to its effect, often for different reasons. This has led partisans on both sides of the aisle to pursue similar protectionist policies. But what is globalization, really? Is it a relatively new phenomenon? And how much water do the cases against it made by both the left and the right hold? In this episode, Philip Booth, professor of finance, public policy, and ethics, and director of Catholic Mission at St. Mary's University, joins Acton's Dan Huger to explore all aspects of free trade and globalization. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash podcast. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Welcome. My name is Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate at the Acton Institute. Today I'm joined by Philip Booth, Professor of Finance, Public Policy, and Ethics, and Director of Catholic Mission at St. Mary's University, Twickham. He was also Academic and Research Director at the Institute for Economic Affairs from 2002 to 2016, and Senior Academic Fellow there from 2016 to 2021. Today, we're going to be talking about free trade and globalization. Dr. Booth, thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. So I suppose the the best place to start is what exactly is globalization? We hear a lot about globalization, about globalists. Mm -hmm. Let's lay some groundwork here on on, on what exactly is is globalization and uh, what, what all does it encompass? Okay. I suppose you could think about it from an institutional perspective and and then a um, technical and practical perspective. So institutionally, it's really allowing the free movement of goods, services, capital, and labor. Um, And uh, from uh, from an institutional perspective, it's a question of removing the impediments which uh, might exist, which are uh, potentially imposed through the political system. And in... um, uh, as those are removed, then, of course, there are technical and practical issues which might inhibit or promote uh, globalization. So what's really happened in the uh, um, late 20th, early 21st century is that there was both uh, institutional change, which permitted, if you like, the free movement of uh, goods, services uh, and, and um, labor to a greater degree. But there was also technical uh, change, which uh, um, and allowed 
partly as a result of the internet, although just not uh, not only as a result of the in- internet, also rather boring technical changes in in, in the field of say shipping, uh, which uh, promoted uh, and reduced the costs of trade to a much greater degree. And that also happened in the late nineteenth century. There were both technical and institutional changes happening at the same time. Okay, so this is a phenomenon. This integration of the world economy at all different sorts of levels is something we see in the 20th and 21st century, but there are historical antecedents as well. Yeah, so the most the most recent and the I suppose the most referred to um, period of globalization before the modern period uh, was that in the late 19th century. So um, from 1870, say, to the outbreak of the First World War, uh, it was a period when throughout much of the world, really, there were no impediments to trade at all. And there were also technical innovations which promoted uh, trade. But not only that, there was pretty much free free movement of of people. It was possible to travel throughout the world, uh, more or less, the exceptions being Russia and and Turkey, as far as I know, uh, without without a passport. And the huge numbers of uh, migrants left the country of their birth to live in other countries. I I believe that at the turn of the 20th century, about 10% of the world's population lived outside the country of their birth. You could move capital from a bank account in Britain to a bank account in Argentina to finance the railways development in Argentina. You could ship goods from uh, Germany to the United States, trade on the same terms pretty much everywhere in the world. That's amazing. Um, and this is this free movement of peoples is, of course, what largely populated the United States yes. today. Mm-hmm. Um, if we look at those challenges, you mentioned some of those institutional challenges, some of those barriers. What do those look like? Um, and what have been the barriers also, also in the past that have disrupted? You know, we talked about the 19th century as this great time. Um, but there were obstacles then as well. Yeah, so maybe let, let's divide those obstacles into two categories. So one is catastrophic events, which um, on their own are not aimed necessarily at stopping globalization and stopping free trade, um, but they have a big impact on um, trade and globalization. So the uh, a period of globalization in the late 19th century came to an end, as I mentioned, with the, the First World War. That, that was catastrophic. The, the, we, we never really recovered um, the levels of globalization which existed in 1913, perhaps until about 2000, 2005. Some would argue that we haven't recovered them uh, at, at all. So there were these catastrophic, catastrophic events. I think you could um, argue that the Reformation in an earlier period, the fall of the Roman Empire, these types of political events... Um, which are not intended to strike at the heart of globalization, but do so. There are then uh, political forces which are deliberately aimed at undermining globalization um, for uh, good reasons, some would say, and and sometimes for more malign uh, reasons. And I think these fall into two categories too. They are um, uh, protectionist measures which are taken um, ostensibly to help the domestic economy, but I would argue that, that they don't. So putting on import tariffs, protecting infant industries, uh, that type of thing. There are then regulatory barriers to trade. So uh, in the UK, we ban the import of chicken cleaned with a weak chlorinated water solution. We also That was also um, banned when we were in the European Union as well. It's a Europe-wide uh, ban. Uh, um, now, the most people would argue that this is a deliberate uh, protectionist measure, but uh, it's justified at least on on, on public health uh, grounds rather than on the grounds of protecting the domestic uh, poultry issue. So 
the threats to protectionism can come in you know, the, both the major, ty- major uh, type and also can be an accumulation of regulation, uh, which is maybe aimed at, at, at other objectives, but uh, has an impact on trade too. And then there are deliberate protectionist measures to try to protect domestic industry. Yeah, an American example of some of these sort of indirect barriers would be um, what we're seeing with, with baby formula yeah, in the United States mm-hmm. today. Yes. Um, and FDA regulations mm-hmm. in the name of public health that prevent baby formula from normally being exported from places like Europe into the United States. Um, no, that's that's excellent. Now, globalization has, has transformed the world, but it's transformed the world in different ways in different places. W- what sort of transformation has happened in the developing world um, with this latest sort of modern round of globalization? Yeah, okay. So there are a, a number of countries which until 1980 were effectively isolated from the uh, world economy and and um, uh, this was the, the most obvious example is, is is China. Vietnam perhaps is a, is a better example in terms of its transformation, but of course is smaller than than China. Um, and th- they uh, pursued a policy of opening themselves up to the world economy and um, and integrating their economies into the world uh, trading system. So that vastly increased the number of uh, of people. The uh, opportunities, as economists put it, for the division of labour and comparative advantage to uh, to um, uh, en- enrich both poor and and, and richer uh, countries alike, and um, raised the incomes of of these countries uh, hugely and lifted vast numbers of people out of poverty. Now, China and Vietnam are perhaps the uh, most uh, dramatic examples because they they had a deliberate strategy of. Uh, of integrating their economy, uh, their countries into the world economy, into the world trading system. But there are other countries as well, such as uh, India, which have significantly reduced their trade barriers, still pretty protectionist in many ways, but they've reduced their um, trade barriers and participated in the process of globalization and benefited uh, uh, from it. Yeah. So they, uh, this, uh, this allowed a transfer of a tremendous amount of capital from outside of those nations, uh, as well as allowed... Uh, multinational corporations and firms to come into these countries, create new opportunities. Transfer technology. Yeah, Yeah. transfer technology where they hadn't been able to before. Now, the story in the developed world, you allude to that, you know, trade is a sort of win-win proposition, um, as all of us sort of grounded in economics 101 know. Um, But it had different effects in the developing world. Um, Could you unpack some of that for us? Yeah, okay, so... The developed world, well, there's no doubt, gained gained from this process. We got cheaper cheaper clothes, specialisation in production processes, which means, you no, know, if you um, if you buy a car, then the car has gone uh, through a production chain which involves several countries, and each of those countries effectively contributes what it can contribute most efficiently to the production uh, of that car. So you end up with better cars and cheaper cars, uh, and 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 so on, and and more innovation and, and more competition. Competition, um, uh, but of course, you know, if you're starting already f- uh, from the position of being a country, let's take the UK as a sort of medium-sized uh, country, already part of a relatively well-integrated uh, trading system which involves Europe, the United States, other countries to um, uh, uh, to maybe a lesser extent as as well. 
then the marginal gains from trade are going to be smaller than if you start as a, uh, um, if I can use this phrase pejoratively, although accurately, I think, a Maoist hermit kingdom in Asia, which uh, it tries to be self-sufficient with complete central planning, and whereas in the case of China, uh, over half the country being um, uh, below the poverty line and, and on the edge of malnutrition, and you suddenly start to liberalise the country internally and integrate into the world trading system, the, the, the gains from trade are going to be um, proportionally that much greater. So you measure maybe the gains from trade in the uh, developed world in relatively small number of percentage points of national income. You measure it in the uh, developing world by um, the taking of hundreds of millions of people out of abject poverty. Yeah, so it's, it's a more thoroughgoing transformation yes. in the developing world. A smaller transformation, but still net benefits um, for folks in those yeah. nations. And it's not. And just to stress, it's not in the developing world in, in relation to these countries by and large, it was not just about trade as well. There were other institutional changes which led to the um, increases in income, prosperity, well-being, etc. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Now, in any great transformation, in those transformations that are very, very big in the developing world, in those transformations, you know, still ripple through and affect developed countries, there are folks that get left behind, at least in the short term. What are some of those challenges in both the developed world and the developing world caused by globalization? So let's start with the developed world, because I think those challenges are easier to identify. So um, we, uh, in the U.S., you often talk about Rust Belt um, uh, states or, or, or cities. And so there are certain parts of the United States which were producing things like um, automobiles and steel. Let's take those two as examples, where, where the, the U.S. was a very significant world producer and also, um, uh, certainly in the case of automobiles, a significant exporter as well. And now the process of globalization uh, takes place or, or, or um, is, is, uh, transforms those industries, uh, at least, and those things are produced much more efficiently in, in other countries. And, and so one thing that happens, and this is the most obvious thing that happens and people believe they can protect themselves against this if they pursue protectionist policies, is that it's possible to import those things into the United States much cheaper, and that undermines the existing industry and puts some people out of a job. Um, the reason why it's actually quite difficult to deal with the impact of that through protectionism, even if you wanted to, and I don't think that would be a good idea, is because the US can no longer export, export those things because the world price of, of, those, um, of cars, steel and so on has, has fallen. So what the US used to produce, uh, it, it can no longer export. It can certainly no longer export it at the prices it used to expo export it at. And no amount of protectionism by the US can do anything ab about losing its export markets uh, in those respects. So, you, yeah, you could argue that for those two reasons, um, uh, one of them, the US, is powerless to do anything about it at all. The first reason, uh, the increase in imports, the US could, if it wished, stop the flow of imports, but that would be very damaging in my view, that it, it leaves some people behind, it leaves um, uh, industries to decay, and, and people may end up uh, unemployed uh, as a result. There's evidence that economists like David Orter 
um, put forward to suggest that this has happened, that this really has been a problem. But even people who identify this as a problem would never argue that protectionism, or rarely argue, certainly economists, wouldn't argue that protectionism is the answer. They would argue that if the state is to intervene at all, it would be in areas such as education, reskilling, retraining, helping people to move jobs, uh, and, and that uh, uh, type of thing. Worth adding that it's not just protectionism which led these jobs to, to disappear. You know, cars are still being produced in the US, uh, um, not necessarily by the traditional uh, US motor companies and not necessarily in, in Michigan, but in other areas of the US where there weren't the same kind of restrictive practices and, and, and where it was possible to embrace new technology uh, more e easily. So this, this Rust Belt phenomenon is not just a trade and globalization story by any means. Yeah, this is, this is a story of the effects of trade unionism. Mm -hmm. This is the story of uh, a competitive competitive markets in the United States because mm -hmm. we have a very a variety of regulatory environments yeah, yeah. state by state mm -hmm. um, and so there's transformations happening globally but there's yeah, yeah. also always transformations Absolutely. happening yeah. within nations themselves yeah, yeah. Um, if we take a look at the developed or the developing world what are we talked about sort of the tremendous upside the rise out of poverty is there anyone in the developing world that's that's displaced by this process, or are there, you know, perhaps institutional challenges to this um, that make globalization maybe a net benefit, but but challenges exist nonetheless? Yes, potentially. So, uh, I mean, certainly Christian charities in the United Kingdom um, often give the impression that they would advise developing countries to be protectionist in order to um, protect, for example, groups of poor farmers. Um, the example is sometimes given, as, given uh, of um, uh, Caribbean countries, which if they opened up to free trade would be outcompeted, say, by Brazil and, and um, in, in many of the products that they produce. I think this is a misunderstanding, by and large, of, of free trade. In particular, I've debated with some of the Christian charities who argue that uh, the, these countries should protect those industries uh, until they become as efficient as, say, Brazil, uh, so that they can compete with them. This really is a flawed argument because one of the purposes uh, of trade is to uh, ensure that countries, to, to help countries produce what they are relatively most efficient at. You know, it may be that Australian farmers are more efficient at producing everything than Jamaican farmers, uh, but what happens in a situation of free trade is that um, Australia will produce that which it's relatively most efficient at producing and, and Jamaica will produce that which it's um, uh, uh, also relatively most efficient at producing, even if it's less productive than Australia. And then you'll, you'll trade and Jamaica will be poorer than Australia, but ev everybody benefits. And until you have the process of, of um, free trade, you don't actually know which industries are going to be the industries where you are relatively most productive. You need, you need the process of trade to discover that. Yeah. You can't identify the industries in advance, then protect them and then hope that they will uh, flourish. Also, the examples that these Christian charities tend to use are almost always, in my experience, in countries which have not really opened up to trade, normally African uh, uh, countries where there's still a, a high degree of protectionism. And you might get one market opening up 
here or there, which may affect producers in a particular uh, industry. But, uh, of course, in, in Asia, you've had this transformation and such a rapid transformation that everybody has been able to benefit from it simultaneously. The, the, lo- the um, losers have been small in number and the, the gainers have been very big gainers and people have been able to move into the more efficient industries very rapidly from the declining industries. That's yeah. That it's an amazing and I think a, a, a great point that you know the market is is among other things a discovery process, and that these sorts of barriers can can turn can can be destabilizing in the long term because they prevent that sort of sorting and that division of labor um, is uh, stagnates and you 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 don't get the development you would see otherwise. How is this process? We've talked about a couple of these regulations, but it seems like today, in the United States certainly, but I know in many other parts of the world, there's a lot of pushback against globalization. We had, I think, a very much uh, a a better sort of global consensus recognizing um, the tremendous upside of this phenomena, uh, you know, let's say, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Now is a time when many politicians on both the left and the right throughout the world are questioning that. Mm-hmm. Um, what do these new threats to globalization look like? Uh, how much do they recapitulate the sort of old arguments? And uh, how much of them are, are is, is there anything new? Yeah, OK. Them? So pre-COVID, I think there were there were two major threats. Um, and at least one of those was uh, essentially old wine in in new bottles so there's the threat of uh, um, the the suspicion of free trade and what it does to domestic production the focus on the interests of production producers rather than consumers the belief that somehow a country gets rich by protecting its markets rather than through uh, engaging in um, trade and uh, in, in a competitive Environment. The, the, these are refrains which you see century after century in, of, in, of economic thought. Um, the French uh, journalist, philosopher, economist Frederick Bastiat wrote about these things um, quite, a, quite a lot. Um, so you're seeing a rehash of those arguments from people like Bernie, um, uh, Bernie Sanders and, and Donald Trump. And, and as, as a result of that, you know, trade wars developing between the United States and the European Union, the US and China uh, and so on. And a weakening of the authority of the WTO, in particular its court, is in a kind of state of, of limbo, partly as a result of US inaction in uh, uh, putting forward uh, new judges for, for, for the court. Uh, um, so you saw a big increase in these types of measures b- between 2016 and 2020. In addition to that, you've there's always been the accumulation of regulatory barriers um, to trade. Sometimes these get, these get knocked down in a trade treaty and then sometimes they build up again. Uh, and they, they're not only damaging, they're, they're also difficult to deal with because of the huge increase in the volume of regulation in, in different countries. So it's, it's quite difficult to develop um, f- free trade treaties uh, which recognise or... Um, somehow deal with the differences between regulation, we talked about chlorinated chicken before, um, be- between different countries. And so you end up with these multi-thousand uh, page long so-called free trade treaties, uh, which again, you know, both sides, free traders 
and protectionists have been able to take um, pot shots at because they see those free trade treaties as a stitch up by big corporations designed to regulate markets in such a way that benefits the big corporations. And there's something in that. So, so from a lot of quite a lot of angles, there are suspicions um, of free trade, and even among strong free trade supporters, they're finding it more difficult, I think, to justify these mammoth free trade treaties which involve thousands of pages of, of, of um, regulatory um, uh, um, re- requirements uh, and, and mutual recognition be- be- between countries. So the environment is, is not good uh, at the moment for free traders. Then, of course, you had COVID and a whole new set of arguments uh, related to, oh, um, we need to be able to produce uh, masks and so on in case we uh, have another episode of COVID or pandemics. I, I think these are pretty much really uh, um, uh, bad arguments. You know, COVID came somewhat out of the blue. Of course, the, the possibility of a pandemic w- w- was always uh, something that people should have been aware of. Uh, but you never really, you, you don't know how to prepare for these things and, until they happen. And a really bad way to prepare for them is by domesticating all production. Because if your domestic production lines are knocked out as a result of the pandemic, then where do you go for um, for your personal protective equipment and, and your respirators and, and so on? And actually, most countries were able to adapt to the problems quite quickly because they were able to access these things from countries which were less affected by, by COVID. So globalisation brings diversification, and I think that brings reduced risks uh, when we have things like pandemics. Yep. Just just like an investment portfolio. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yes. You, you mm-hmm. spread that risk around. Now, one of the other critiques you'll hear um, about globalization is that it affects cultures. And in fact, you know, the, the, the argument would be that it undermines local cultures, that you get a sort of homogenizing uh-huh. element in global con- culture. America gets criticized in particular yeah. about this mm-hmm. as, as, a sort of, as a sort of cultural superpower. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you deal with those arguments are unique in a sense in which, you know, you can't do a sort of economic analysis yeah. on those and you can't come to uh, a clean statement of, you know, comparative benefits. How do you deal with those sorts of arguments when it comes to free trade and globalization? It's difficult because I, I think I think in some ways the response to that is, is, to, some, is to some extent in, instinctive. Um, no, we're all made differently. We all have different virtues, different strengths and weaknesses. And there are some people in life um, who are really strong, good people when it comes to lo- close local relationships, what, what's sometimes called in the um, political theory literature as bonding social capital. And then there are other people who are, um, if you like, welcoming to the outsider. Um, that they they could live anywhere in the world. They they're happy when other people from other parts of the world are living in their communities. And th- those people are sort of strong, if you like, on bridging social uh, uh, capital. And uh, uh, and and both of those types of Often our vices are complementary to our virtues, and, and and both of those types of people have um, uh, have, have have certain strengths 
and are important in a diverse community uh, in in different ways. You know, you you want people who are really good at making close local relationships. You want people who are able to reach out to others. And I think it's natural for the first group to be uh, concerned about the cultural implications of globalisation and natural for the second group to be really quite um, blasé about the cultural implications of globalisation. Now, I've got no empirical evidence to, to, to just to um, back up that theory, but I think that's part of what goes on. I think some people are just instinctively hostile to the cultural implications and some people are actually instinctively rather uh, rather favourable. I, I mean, what happens in practice is that you, you get a... Um, an integration of cultures, but the uncultured changes and culture, um, cultures in one country adopt aspects of the cultures of other countries, but you still get differences. You still get different types of, of differences. Um, um, people sometimes use the example of chicken tikka masala, which is a kind of invented British Indian uh, dish uh, which was uh, um, has a source because British people like gravy, but the original was was dry, uh, and this was a a, 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 um, a sort of um, British Britishification, if you like, of uh, Indian um, uh, Indian food, and you you, f- you find that type of thing in in lots of. Uh, context. No, McDonald's, okay, there may be a McDonald's in every major city, but the McDonald's menu is no longer the same in every uh, major city like it, it, it used to be. The English language is, is used very, very widely, but actually the sort of different versions of the uh, English language in, in different parts of the world. So I, I, I really don't see this cultural homogenization at all. And if, if anything, I think it, it does enrich uh, uh, cultures as yeah. much as anything else. And it's also something I when I when I encounter these arguments, I always think, you know, human culture is always dynamic mm. and it's always changing. Yeah. The fact that we have a Christian Europe, mm. you know, <laughs> uh, or had a Christian Europe. Yes. <laughs> or have a Christian North America or have, uh, you know, Buddhists in Japan is the product of cultural exchange in an era that many critics of globalization would say this sort of thing didn't happen. Yes. Um, yeah. So these these things might be more striking to us. They might mm-hmm. be faster. But I think this is a reality of human life yeah. and living together. Mm. Um, and we want to, and we want to take the gospel to the ends of the world. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that will naturally involve creating a, a Christian culture, but one which will have um, be different in different contexts. Yeah, the, the, the church in Poland is not, and or the church in Slovakia is not the same as the uh, the church in Guatemala. Now, speaking of the church, there are critics, and you alluded to this too in some debates with some some Christian charitable organizations, but there's also been, been criticism uh, within the Catholic Church, within other religious traditions of globalization. What, what, do, what do some of those arguments look like, and how do you engage those? The arguments normally relate, in fact, to... Uh, Income inequality. That's, I mean, so Pope Francis has, has raised these cultural issues, which, which, which as, as we've discussed, that, that, that's a serious criticism with which we, we, we should engage and have productive discussions. So there isn't a single answer uh, there. So, um, so I think Pope, Pope Francis is, is right, and, and it, it's, it's interesting that he should raise um, those questions. Uh, and the Catholic Church has a, itself 
which regards itself, of course, as the, as the worldwide church, um, has a particular response and should have a particular response to, to, to those uh, questions. Um, so the, the Catholic Church believes in a global church, but at the same time it's saying it doesn't want the homogenization of certain aspects of culture. Well, that, that's, that's fine. You have to reconcile those things. It needs a discussion. Good. Good, good that Pope Francis should raise those issues. Uh, the other issue which has been raised continually in the last 20 years uh, is the idea of increasing, uh, the, the uh, supposed problem of increasing inequality. Now, the focus in Catholic social teaching has often been actually on raising the status of the poor. Um, obviously, the rich have a special responsibility and and um, a, a rather grave responsibility to manage their riches in such a way that they don't um, alienate themselves from, from God. Um, but the, the church is normally focused on the poor rather than on inequality as, as such. But let's put that aside. Um, so the church has, has often, the Catholic church has often um, criticised Globalization on the grounds that it increases inequality. This is quite a difficult claim to substantiate. So it's it's certainly true that the top one percent of people in the world um, are getting richer relative to the rest of the world, and globalization is almost certainly uh, an aspect, or, uh, one of the reasons why why that is so. In most um, uh, developed countries, inequality is getting slightly higher, but not. Not necessarily dramatically so, and in, and and in the UK, it's been pretty much constant for the last um, forty years. Um, so there's, there's a kind of mixed picture there, but globally, inequality is falling, and it's almost difficult to describe how dramatically inequality has has fallen uh, globally. One statistic, although no, it, it may not may not make that much sense to describe it um, in in words, so. The U.S. is one of the um, uh, world's most unequal countries uh, amongst developed countries. Uh, um, if the normal standard measure of inequality, which is um, the, called the Gini coefficient, fell by as much in the U.S. as it is as it has fallen in the world as a whole, the U.S. would be move from being more or less the most unequal developed country to being more or less the most equal developed country. There's been a staggering reduction in global inequality for the first time uh, in a meaningful way in, in the economic history of our planet. When we were talking about Pope Francis, I was thinking of another aspect of globalization because one aspect of globalization that, that Pope Francis has been enthusiastic about is the rights of migrants. Mm. And the free movement of peoples, particularly people in distress, in a, in a situation of refugees, these sorts of things. And we've talked a lot about trade. Um, what is the picture of immigration right now globally? And is that, it seems that you, you have a different sort of controversy about immigration than you have about sort of the free flow of of capital or of goods yeah mm -hmm. yeah so there are quite a lot of conservatives or, or economic liberals that we call them in in the uk who uh, are supportive of globalization in general but not necessarily so of of migration um 
Now, this has always got to be at least, a, or nearly always, at least to some extent, to be got to be a matter of degree. There are very, very few people around. There are some, but there aren't many people around who believe in totally open borders. Now, most people, um, even who are pretty liberal when it comes to migration, would say uh, um, that we have to do something in relation to the welfare state to prevent um, migration swamping uh, uh, countries. Others would say actually there's there's no need to do that because uh, migrants actually don't don't come from for, for welfare and they are more likely to work than the um, indigenous population. So that that that's a debate a debate to be had. But there aren't many people who believe in a, a totally uh, open borders. Um, so there, I mean there are two different things going on, aren't there? So there's the um, significant amount of forced migration and human trafficking, uh, um, which is arising because of the situations of war in various parts of the world and, and also these um, uh, uh, various trafficking routes in which criminal gangs uh, run. And uh, we feel that particularly acutely in, in Europe and it's quite a big problem for the UK because a large proportion of these uh, migrants want to get to the UK. And it's controversial because they often come through a number of safe countries before they get to the UK. So there's lots of controversy uh, about that. Um, and then there's the question of economic migrants, in other words, people who are perfectly free in the country they live in, but they would like to move somewhere else in order to be um, uh, better off. And, uh, yeah, people should have the right to leave their own country. Uh, Catholic social teaching argues that people do, if they... Um, you know, it's not an absolute obligation to remain in the country of your birth, but you you should really remain in the country of your birth and contribute to the common good of your community uh, if if you can. Um, but at the same time, you do have a right to migrate, and um, but at the same time, not every it doesn't follow that every country in the world has a right to accept all economic migrants that um, turn up in, in particular countries. So these matters, these are matters for um, um, prudential ju judgment, uh, as Catholics would, would put it. But there's no doubt that the sympathies of Pope Francis lie with, um, with the migrants, but most particularly with the asylum seekers, the refugees, the trafficked, uh, etc. Yeah. One of the interesting things when we talk about particularly these situations with economic migrants, but also the situation, I think, with um, with the <clears throat> migrants in the other categories, the, the politically oppressed, yeah. the refugees, um, is that the other elements of globalization, that free movement of capital, those free movements of goods, that is something that can help stabilize countries worldwide and create an economic situation in the world where in many more countries you have that option to stay and serve where you are. Um, what do you think of, of, of that as a potential? You have some economists, uh, Paul Romer has mm -hmm. talked about you know, setting up, you know, certain legal environments, yeah. perhaps different institutional arrangements mm -hmm. within developing countries to create, um, you know, a viable um, institutional framework for economic growth um, in these countries. What do you think of those sorts of approaches to dealing with this issue? There are always first round and second round effects. So just let me um, say, first of all, that... Uh, um, 
that there are movements to promote free trade in Africa. There's a, an African free trade uh, treaty. If that happens, and there's also a redu uh, continued reduction in civil conflict in, in Africa and better governance in other respects, given Africa's democratic, uh, sorry, demographic situation, if you could buy shares in a continent, I, uh, I think it would be worth a punt uh, on, on Africa because you know, Asia, Europe, um, even North America doesn't look great from a demographic uh, um, position and, and also in the way that uh, um, uh, war and other forms of tension are, are developing in, in those areas. And um, so Africa might be a good example of where there's already quite a bit of desire for economic migration people to move to improve uh, their lot. Um, and the same, of course, happens um, from Asia. And I think the experience of Asia shows that the improvement of these countries economically doesn't necessarily reduce migration. Because if you're on the edge of starvation, of course, people have um, migrated in, in the, those, that, that situation before. But actually, the practical obstacles to migration are much greater than um, if you're moving up from a subsistence level of income towards middle income. So I think it's quite possible that as these countries develop, yeah, they, they may become, well, actually, they may become more attractive for other people to go and live there because there might be quite high-paid um, job opportunities, even if they remain relatively low-income countries for the moment. Um, but the, the people, more people have the means to leave, to go to other places. Uh, and, um, and, and of course, these other parts of the world are going to be very short of people in the coming 30 years because of the demographic crisis. So I think it's pretty difficult. I, uh, I think you'd have to be a pretty brave man to bet on future migration patterns. Yeah, no. Too many variables kicking around there. There are, there are tremendous opportunities and sort of abiding challenges to an integrated world and thank you so much for exploring them with us. Pleasure. Thank you. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Combe.